Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really fascinating conversation on lung nodules and lung cancer. Today, we are fortunate to have Drs. Vachani and Dr. Gould as our guests, and we'll be discussing their article entitled, The Probability of Lung Cancer in Patients with Incidentally Detected Pulmonary Nodules clinical characteristics, and accuracy of prediction models. So we'll go ahead and let our guests introduce themselves. Uh, Dr. Vachani? Uh, hello, uh, and, and good to be with you. I'm Anil Vachani. I'm a pulmonologist uh, at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Anil. Um, and Dr. Gould? Yeah, hi. Michael Gould. I'm a uh, professor in the Department of Health System Science at the um, Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Michael. So maybe you can set the stage for us, uh, Michael. Why is it important for us to predict lung cancer in patients who have lung nodules? Yeah, so I would um, maybe reframe the question slightly. To, um, to address the issue of estimating the probability of cancer. So we're not necessarily making a prediction of yes or no. I think we're, um, we're recognizing that the first step in the management of patients with nodules of a certain size is to, um, is to risk stratify or put people in bins on the basis of the, the clinical pretest probability. And so there have been a variety of um, approaches and efforts to uh, develop models and and, um, uh, and and tools in order to determine who's at low risk, who's well, who has low probability, intermediate probability, or high probability of having a cancerous nodule. And I I corrected myself there. I started talking about risk, but um, but. Um, uh, use, per, greatly prefer to use the word probability because patients with nodules are not technically at risk of developing cancer. They either have a cancerous nodule or not. So I think risk kind of sends the wrong, uh, communicates the, the wrong uh, idea. And so what we're talking about here is estimating the probability of cancer. And again, it's the first step that will guide downstream management. So you um, you might um, uh, very well uh, take a completely different approach for a for a low probability patient versus a high probability patient. Neil, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I, I think you covered it well. So, in terms of you know management for low probability versus high probability, Michael, um, what should our audience be aware would be your approach uh, before we uh, 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 turn our attention to Anil? Yeah, so I think the standard um, uh, or, or conventional wisdom is that most patients with a 
a low probability nodule can be managed um, by um, by CT surveillance, and for for a nodule that's nine to nine to thirty millimeters in diameter, larger nodules that we addressed in this study, that typically means short interval surveillance with a repeat CT scan of three months. For patients at the other end of the spectrum with a, a very high probability of cancer, it would be reasonable to refer them for surgical diagnosis as long as they um, as long as they're they're operable and don't have contraindications to surgery. And um, for the majority of patients who I think fall in the middle and the intermediate range, um, it's helpful to. <clears throat> to take further steps to either characterize a nodule or establish the diagnosis before um, b- before proceeding with, with more in, uh, aggressive steps like surgery. So in that intermediate range, we usually think about functional imaging with PET or a biopsy, a non-surgical biopsy of the nodule, either uh, percutaneous biopsy or, or uh, increasingly now with... Um, with new bronchoscopic techniques uh, using using bronchoscopic biopsy. Great. Thanks for setting the stage. So let's turn our attention to Anil. Um, you conducted the study um, as the first author. Why did you perform the study? Uh, what was your motivation and rationale? Um, yes, thank you. I think uh, this study was uh, performed by a collaborative group, including myself and, and many of the other investigators listed on the on the article. Um, I think as based on the the background that Michael just described, our objective um, of the study were, were actually there were primarily two objectives that we wanted to pursue. One was to first describe the clinical characteristics amongst patients with insulin detected pulmonary nodules and estimate the probability of cancer primarily based on smoking behavior and nodule sizes. Those two factors are are the ones that really drive the probability of malignancy the most. And then two, um, you know, based on the fact that existing guidelines uh, for pulmonary nodule management recommend the use of risk prediction models to estimate the probability, uh, most commonly the Mayo model and the Brock model, we wanted to uh, assess the accuracy of of these two most commonly used models um, in this population to to uh, to understand how accurate these were in providing a probability estimate. And were there any other uh, predictors that you would have wanted to include in your model, for example, upper lobe versus lower lobe? Um, were there any others that our audience should be aware of? Um, certainly. As you just alluded to, there are several other factors that uh, that play a role in determining the probability, including location, upper lobe versus not, um, the age of participants uh, or the age of the patients with pulmonary nodules, um, um, prior cancer history, and nodule characteristics or nodule edge characteristics, such as whether the nodule is speculated or not. So we we tried to account for all of those other variables as much as we could in our evaluation of these of these risk prediction models. Um, and we'll, I think, come back to some of the limitations of our analysis where we'll, I think, come back to a couple of those factors. Great. So, Anil, let's jump into your study methods. Um, how did you perform your study, and how did they address any limitations of previous studies that were performed? Yeah, I think the uh, the literature on this has been actually relatively slim given the, the size of the problem. We know that not 
incidentally detected nodules are, are a fairly frequent problem in, in our field. Um, but when you look to, to see what's out there in terms of estimating the probability of incidentally detected nodules, the, the literature is a little bit sparse. And prior studies, I believe, have been limited largely due to sort of three primary concerns. One, that they have had relatively small sample sizes. Um, there are some concerns around selection bias. So, for example, some of the studies have been done only amongst those who've been referred to a pulmonologist, which you know, raises some concerns around um, the sample not being truly population-based. Um, and finally, some concerns around whether um, prior studies have had sort of full data capture, full follow-up to assess cancer outcomes. So our analysis uh, you know, took advantage of, of Michael's institution, KP Southern California, which is an integrated health system, uh, and we were able to identify approximately 24,000 individuals with an incidentally detected nodule uh, at KPSC um, between 2006 and 2016. Uh, we used an NLP tool to uh, examine CT reports to identify nodules and to, to uh, extract nodule characteristics, also a tool developed by Michael and his colleagues um, at, at KP. Uh, and then we were able to then do our descriptive analyses of these characteristics and um, use ROC curves to examine the, um, the accuracy of the two prediction models I mentioned previously. And Michael, do you want to add any other comments on the methods before um, Anil uh, gives us uh, the findings? Um, I think the only um, additions I would make is that we, um, we, we, you know, you always make decisions about you know the study population and and um, uh, assembling the cohort and assemb assembling the data. So upfront, we thought it was important to. Um, to to exclude patients who had a prior lung cancer diagnosis or uh, a prior diagnosis of an extrathoracic cancer where the risks are different and the, the management strategies are different. And um, again, using our our, um, our our research data warehouse, we we have. Um, good information about, and, and our cancer registry, we have good information about prior cancer diagnosis. So, so we were able to, um, you know, refine the study population to focus exclusively on patients with no prior cancer, which I think is important. The other decision we made um, later in the process was that um, we focused on the patients with larger nodules, nodules measuring greater than eight millimeters in diameter. And we had actually wanted to be, I think, more inclusive uh, at the get-go, but ran into um, ran into some some thorny issues with the smaller nodules. So the smaller nodules are more common. They're definitely important, but the management of patients with, with smaller nodules is typically CT surveillance. And the question for them is, how frequently do you, um, do, you do the surveillance imaging and for how long? And the, the issue of pretest probability is not really as crucial for those patients. So we didn't sacrifice, I don't feel like we sacrificed much by uh, limiting our sample to the um, 9 to 15 millimeter, uh, 9 to 30 millimeter nodule group, um, again, because I, I think the, the clinical probability is less important for the smaller nodules. But we did, yeah, this is kind of one of the inside baseball 
um, aspects of the study. We we did have trouble ascertaining the the outcome in the patients with the spinal nodule. You know, it, it, among the among the patients with small nodules who had cancer, it was not clear to us whether the nodule was actually a cancerous nodule or whether the the nodule was an innocent bystander and the patient had. Um, had had developed uh, lung cancer along the way, uh, independent of the nodule. So I'm, I hope I'm not clouding the picture too much here, but um, our results don't apply to patients with smaller nodules. Um, they're definitely an important um, an important population to study, um, but there are some you know some some technical and other issues that make it more challenging to study. And we, and we didn't want to, um, uh, uh, we, we didn't want to take steps that would lead to um, introduction of bias or, or, you know, misleading results. But I think it's perfectly reasonable to focus on the 9 to 30 millimeter group as you did. Um, Neil, I just wanted to get a clarification on um, uh, so you looked at patients who had a CT report of lung nodules. Were you able to um, get a radiologist to review any of those scans? Um, there was a big uh, sample of uh, 24,000 individuals. Um, so were you able to uh, ensure that the, the reports were actually correct? Uh, that's a good question. In this particular analysis, we did not do that, but that um, has been done in, in, the, in the development of the NLP tool itself. So this NLP tool, uh, as I mentioned, was developed in some separate work by Michael and his colleagues in this same sort of population um, where they um, ultimately were able to validate. Uh, and Michael, you're going to maybe have to, to chime in with the, with the numbers if you'd like, but the, to validate the NLP tool against um, direct review of scans to confirm um, the sort of sensitivity and specificity essentially of the NLP tool to accurately identify and um, provide characteristics for the nodules themselves. But in this sample size of 24,000, we did not do any primary review of, of the reports or the images themselves. Yeah, so so um, more more dirty laundry to, um, to uh, disclose or share with people. So, and, and the radiologists are going to hate this, but um, we, we decided um, early on to accept the CT reports at face value. And, and the reason for that was, was uh, largely pragmatic and, um, and I think grounded in the way, you know, for better or worse, most uh, patients with nodules are managed in, in, in practice, which is they're seen by a primary care doctor and the primary care doctor reads the report and they don't necessarily look at the scan. So, um, so you know, there are some limitations in terms of validity, but I think it actually, um, it actually uh, enhances the generalizability of our findings because it reflects into practice. Okay, so let's jump into the findings, Anil. Um, what were your key findings, and how did you interpret them? Sure. Um, there, let me see if I can do a reasonable job here of summarizing our key findings and, um, and certainly ask for Michael's help if I forget something important. Um, 
So we found that amongst nodules that were of 9 to 30 millimeters in size were relatively common finding in this population with an incidence of about 1 in uh, per 1,000 patient years of uh, a follow-up that we had. Um, not surprisingly, smaller nodules within this size range, smaller nodules were more common than larger nodules. So amongst this size range, the nodules that were 5 to 15 millimeters uh, accounted for about 55% of our population, while those that were 15 to 20 accounted for about 20%, and the ones that were 20 to 30 uh, accounted for an additional 20% of the population approximately. Um, the big result, of course, is that in this overall population, the probability of having a malignant nodule was approximately 10% with a follow-up of 27 months. And we can come back and discuss the significance of that finding in a little bit. Um, and as we, as we mentioned earlier, smoking behavior and nodule size were strong predictors of, of cancer risk in this population, so that the risk of cancer amongst the never smokers was 5% overall, the risk of cancer in the former smokers was 12%, and in current smokers was 18%. And, and those, um, those estimates, of course, varied by nodule size, so that even within never smokers, as the nodule size went from 9 to 15 to 15 to 20 to 20 to 30, the risk of cancer increased somewhat linearly. Um, so as an example, for the overall rate to non-smokers was 5%, but was 3% in the 9 to 15, 6% in the 15 to 20, and 11% in the 20 to 30 millimeter nodules. And that effect uh, of, of size playing a, a significant role in, in um, probability sort of held within all of the um, smoking groups that were obser observed. And the largest risk amongst that uh, strata was 30% uh, for those who were current smokers and had a nodule between 20 and 30 millimeters in size. Um, and then uh, turning to the models, we found that the Mayo model was a, a little bit more accurate than the Brock model. So if you were to compare AUCs, the AUC for the Mayo model was 0 0.75, while it was 0 0.71 for the Brock model. Uh, we, we did find that if you looked at the calibration of these two models in this population, that they both appeared to overestimate the probability of cancer, particularly on the higher ends or the higher components of predicted probability. Uh, this actually somewhat reflects a little bit of what people have told me they observe in practice, that when they, that when they use these models, they feel like the models are providing a, a risk estimate that's a little bit higher than they may have estimated themselves based on sort of their clinical sort of clinical uh, perspective or, or clinical um, knowledge, um, and I think it sort of bore out a little bit in our results. Um, I think that the main finding, you know, as I sort of, uh, sort of stated in the middle, was really the 10% probability of malignancy across this entire population. It was, it was a little bit lower than I would have thought, uh, or at least what had been suggested in the literature previously amongst this size range um, and what's predicted by, or what's estimated by the, by the two models. And so, I think that that's something that uh, that I think is important for the field because I think it does, as Michael mentioned earlier, the probability of malignancy is really what drives future future events and decisions around what to do. And um, I think that that uh, may help providers think about uh, what the probability of malignancy may be in their in their particular patient. Michael, I don't know if you, you know, want to add something to that. Yeah, before Michael, um, I, I mean, I found that that was really fascinating data, um, and the fact that you've um, taken it down to the steps of, are you a smoker, yes, no, and the size of the nodule, and you can speak to your patient and let them know, based on your smoking status and the size of your nodule, the probability of cancer is X amount, is really important data. Michael? 
Yeah, and um, I'm I'm kind of regretting now that we didn't look at the accuracy of um, uh, you know what would be a really simple model based on based on just size and smoking history and compare that with the Mayo. And if you're familiar with the Mayo model, those are two of the important terms. But there's also age and whether you have a, a prior history or, or a family history of cancer and um, where the nodule is located, whether it's speculated or not. And I, I suspect that, well, it's pretty clear that the, the full Mayo model is going to outperform something that, you know, just just looks at two of the six risk factors that are included in the full model. But I think you can get pretty close just with um, just with size and smoking history alone. And there may be um, clinical utility to, you know, that shorthand. So as Neil mentioned, the probabilities before, you know, there, there's like a um, an easy to remember 10, 20, 30 rule for the current smokers with nodules of 9 to 15, 15 to 20, 20 to 30 millimeters um, that, you know, clinicians may not take the time to plug variables into an online calculator like Mayo. And, and there's a tool that they could use, at least for the current smokers, that's, you know, maybe top of mind. <clears throat> and at the other end of the sport, well, the other scenario for the never smokers, it's um, it's a little bit more complicated, but it's roughly three, six, twelve percent across the three size categories. So, um, yeah, there, there again, people use um, mnemonics to try to get through, you know, practice as efficiently as possible, and that may be helpful. The other thing about the calibration that maybe I'll add is that it's not such a bad thing that the models overestimate the probability of cancer. In some ways, it's 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 conservative. Um, if the if the worst possible outcome is missing a cancer, so obviously we want to minimize evaluation for patients who have nodules that um, that are not cancerous. But I think most of us. Um, feel like the, the the first imperative, the first priority is to identify the cancerous nodules as efficiently and um, and and quickly as possible. And so, <clears throat> I'd be more concerned about calibration if it was the other way around. If we were underestimating the probability of cancer, because that would lead to um, more delays in diagnosis and and um, more harm to patients. Neil, your response to that? No, I, I, I largely agree. I think the the only sort of nuance I might add to that is that uh, you know the converse argument to this is that there is certainly considerable attention paid to the idea that many patients who undergo surgical biopsy for pulmonary nodules um, are ultimately found to have benign nodules at, at the time of diagnosis. Different series have made have provided different estimates, but they've you know ranged from you know as low as five ten percent to upwards of thirty or thirty five percent on the high end, um, and so I think that you know that has caught a fair amount of attention around trying to minimize those who end up going all the way to a surgical resection uh, when there's a reasonable probability of of having benign disease. Where you know I think that there are now increasingly uh, available tools as as my, uh, as uh, Michael had mentioned. You know, we have the ability to do PET scan. We've probably gotten better at bronchoscopic biopsy. Um, TTNA certainly still remains a viable option. And so we just need to be careful and thoughtful around um, who we send for, for surgical biopsy. 
And then in terms of generalizability of the study, um, uh, does this data apply to uh, folks on the you know East Coast, uh, to folks in Europe, uh, to other countries? Uh, what limitations would you um, want our audience to be aware of uh, in terms of the key findings of the study? Anil? <laughs> that's a great question. I was just about to say, that's one for Michael, I think, isn't it? Um, so I, I think the question you're asking is, uh, you know, how representative is the population that we studied, a population-based a population sample from Southern California to other areas of the United States or, or to, to worldwide? And I think the, you know, the main thing to think about probably is um, how the, how the, um, the prevalence of granulomatous disease might influence these results. So if you're in areas where um, there's a high prevalence of granulomatous disease, where there are larger, perhaps, nodules that are actually benign uh, as opposed to being malignant, um, given the presence of coxie or histo, would that change these estimates? Probably so, at least to some degree. The question is how much, and, and does it, would it drastically change how to interpret these findings in those populations? Um, this might be one where I turn to the idea that we need more work, right? We do need to see more studies like this in other populations, um, both in the United States and worldwide, to understand how robust our findings are to, to other populations. I agree. Uh, Michael, you want to chime in? Yeah, so I, I think that's probably one of the, um, the main uh, limitations in terms of generalizability. The other one, as I mentioned before, is that, you know, we didn't uh, include uh, patients with smaller nodules, so we don't have much to say about them. Um, we, we think that with some caution, you can probably um, generalize our results from current and former smokers with incidental nodules, incidentally detected nodules, which we studied, to, you know, the growing population of patients with screening detected nodules. But again, we didn't technically enroll or, or look at um, uh, 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 patients uh, who had uh, low-dose CT scans uh, for lung cancer screening. So I think some caution is, is warranted there. Um, but interestingly, if you look at our estimates of um, the probability of cancer or the frequency of cancer as a function of nodule size and current and former smokers, they, they actually map pretty uh, closely to uh, what, you, what you see in the lung rads classification system for screening detected nodules. So it does provide some um, you know, indirect validation of, of lung rads as a tool that, you know, could even apply to patients with incidental nodules. And then lastly, um, I think as Anil mentioned uh, earlier, we didn't have, um, well, radiologists during this time period were not as, um, as attentive as they probably should have been in reporting characteristics like the attenuation of the nodule and the edge. And I think we've seen that improve over time in our more recent work. Um, but those are important features that drive probability estimates that we were unable to capture. And then, Michael, in terms of future studies that need to be done, um, you've identified several limitations. There, there are no perfect studies. Um, we definitely learn from one study to the next. Um, what limitations would you want future studies to address um, to get to this really important question of 
how do we um, determine the probability of lung cancer in patients with lung nodules? Yeah, so I think we need um, better models and, and better tools. And, and, you know, Neil could speak more eloquently and authoritatively about, um, about biomarkers uh, than I can. Um, but I think that's where a lot of recent um, energy is being directed in a, in a search for uh, biomarkers to guide decision-making. I think while, while we're able to generate, we were able to generate some data that, in, that you know, can inform clinical practice from, a, you know, what's, what's one of the first and certainly the largest population-based samples of patients with incidentally detected nodules. Um, what we found in terms of the, um, the performance of the risk models is that they're just okay. They don't do all that well. And so, again, we need better tools to guide decision-making. And um, there may be some, some promise in, in novel biomarkers. So, Neil, maybe you could comment for us on how are you going to integrate both the CAT scan and your biomarkers based on uh, the data that you obtained from this study? Um, agreed. I think that, as Michael mentioned, the, the model, the current models are are just okay, uh, and they do a reasonable job, but but certainly have limitations. And uh, I think that uh, you know further improvements in our ability to to estimate the probability likely will come from from new tools like biomarkers, whether those are blood-based biomarkers or those are quantitative imaging tools that are on the horizon. Uh, I'm not sure that I sort of know the exact path forward beyond to say I, I don't think that there's, you know, I don't think there's any clinical demographic variables or nodule characteristics that are easily accessible that are, you know, yet to be incorporated into models. So I do think that the next big leap will be with, with the biomarker data that's sort of coming forward from from various groups. I think that, um, I think that. There are a couple tools uh, already available uh, on the market that have uh, provided at least some initial estimates of of improvement, though that might be modest, uh, at least at present. But I I suspect that there will be a fair amount of evidence coming forward from from the many tools that are are being evaluated now in the next few years. And I suspect that the primary way to think about these tools is is to understand whether there's a way to take uh, the biomarker itself uh, and add it to these models to see if they improve. Do these models, do these, do these tests that are uh, out there work independently of the models somehow? Uh, I think all that has remained to be determined, and uh, I think it's still an exciting time in, in the pulmonary nodule space uh, from my perspective. Oh, definitely. I think we've got a whole lot more work to be done, and we really appreciate you both for uh, this really important study. Um, as we get to the end of this podcast, I do want to give each of you the opportunity to um, leave our audience with a concluding remark or, um, or anything that we haven't covered in the podcast that you feel that they really should know about. Um, I'll start with Michael, and I'll let Anil have the final word. Michael? Yeah, so I think I'll just uh, you know reiterate something we said before and you know, put it in somewhat different terms, which is that um, by providing data from this population-based sample, our results are something of a reality check um, because a lot of the pulmonary nodule literature has 
you know, for better or worse, uh, enrolled selected population. So patients who are referred for surgical evaluation, patients who are referred for PET scanning, patients who are referred for pulmonary evaluation. And we see much higher um, uh, uh, frequency of cancer in those populations. So, um, and, and even as, as Neil mentioned, even the couple of studies that have looked at um, unselected or less highly selected populations, the probability of cancer has been a little bit higher. So, so I think this uh, work kind of brings us um, to, to a more realistic point where, yes, cancer is a real probability. It's something that we need to worry about in the patients with the, you know, this subgroup of patients with the larger nodules. But it's not 40%, it's not 60%. We're, we're talking about one out of 10, um, which in some ways, you know, makes the, the task that much more difficult. It's, it's, um, it's imperative to find the cancerous nodules. And if there are, you know, fewer needles in the haystack, then it takes more effort to find them. So, um, so, so the, the first take home message is that, um, uh, Nodules are relatively common. Cancer is uh, relatively uncommon, but still important. And um, estimates of the probability of cancer are really crucial for guiding subsequent management. And so hopefully our, um, our results can help people to make that determination. And then, Neil, uh, would you give us the final word? Well, well, I will uh, build on on what Michael just said and say that I, I really do believe that um, that the estimates that uh, that this paper provides and that the literature provides in general should really be a starting point, and that there really is something to the pulmonologist's or surgeon's acumen. Uh, and uh, and experience to be used in determining the probability of malignancy as well. This, you know, of course, requires those who take care of this problem frequently in practice and, and have built up some level of experience to understand how to evaluate a CAT scan and, and really come to a probability and a, and, a, and a decision for an individual patient based on where the nodule is, how difficult will it be to biopsy, uh, what are the patient's preferences to, to ultimately arrive at the, at the right decision. We certainly need more, I think, data on, on, on clinician assessment and clinician experience in, in helping to guide the decision process and, and, and to modify the probability of cancer uh, and then guide the, the next steps. And I think that also is a, another exciting area for ongoing work in the future. Definitely, and I applaud both of you for a really great uh, conversation and uh, for highlighting this really important topic. Uh, we definitely don't want to miss any cancerous nodules, and I think you've given us a framework with, with which clinicians can uh, figure out, you know, based on the size and their smoking status, uh, next steps as to the probability of lung cancer. So a very big thank you to uh, Dr. Zwichani and Dr. Gold for um, a, a really great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper. And this is a chess podcast.